0: Good afternoon. It's good to see all of you. 24 February was the anniversary of the Ukrainian war. It's been more than a year now since Russia launched a full-scale invasion of Ukraine, and so far, the total number of soldiers injured or killed in action, estimated at about 300,000, or about thousand a day in february we also saw the earthquake that devastated many areas in turkey and syria the death toll estimated at a moment 50,000. One is clearly a man-made disaster while the other on the surface appears to be a wholly natural disaster but dig deeper and you'll find that a high death toll in the earthquake is largely due to the poor structural integrity of buildings, a result of years of poor enforcement of building codes, cheap materials used, all possible because of corruption in government over the years. So two somewhat different disasters that claim so many lives, they share to a large extent a similar cause. Leaders leaders matter and that's the title of the sermon for this afternoon our study of the gospel of Matthew which started in September 2021 can you believe that that's about one and a half years ago what's finally coming to a climax I said climax I didn't say end we are still quite some way from the end and last week, Glenn preached on a passage that marked the start of the Holy Week. We saw Jesus making his triumphant entry into Jerusalem, very much in charge. Fulfilling the prophet Zechariah's prophecy, he rides on a donkey and enters the city. And people were shouting to him, Hosanna, son of David. And Jesus accepted that title bestowed on him now that's a big deal that's a big deal because that's the title of the messianic king that the jews have been expecting for centuries and then he enters the temple and then fulfilling the prophecy of the prophet malachi he purifies it he cleanses it and as someone puts it the messiah stakes claim in the central shrine of his people you know it's a bit like kings you know they in those days, conquering cities, uh, this, this would be what they'll do. They enter the city, they march into the very center of power to claim it. Well, think of our cowboy movies, right? Uh, of the wild, wild west. For those of you who watch those, uh, the hero rides the town and what happens? Straight away, he heads for the bar or the saloon, isn't it? Because everybody who's anybody will be there. And so Jesus enters the city, cleanses the temple, and driving out the commercial activities in the temple, Jesus quotes Isaiah chapter 56, verse 7. It is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer. And you know what Isaiah chapter 56 is about? Unfaithful and irresponsible leaders of Israel. So you can imagine how the leaders of the temple, the chief priests and the scribes must have felt. And we are told, in fact, in verse 15 of chapter 21, that they were indignant. But but that's probably an understatement. I think they were hopping mad. I mean, how dare someone without the requisite qualifications, not ordained, no degree from Wycliffe College, right? Whose previous occupation was a carpenter from an unknown town in Galilee, how could dare he come and think that he has authority over how the temple should be run? But you know what? Jesus was just getting started. This king has made a triumphant entry into the city. He has staked his claim on the temple and now he's going for the leaders. Our three stories from the Matthew passage um, that Harold read for us a moment ago they might seem unconnected but it's there they share a common theme leaders in particular unfaithful irresponsible leaders starting at verse 18 we are told how jesus on his way to jerusalem early in the morning became hungry he saw a fig tree and went to it hoping to find some fruit but he found only leaves no fruits he cursed it may no fruit ever come from you again and the fig tree were told with it at once a bit extreme one would think well our environmentalists certainly wouldn't approve of it and then well my family would tell you I can get pretty grouchy too when I'm hungry but I don't think the moral of the story here is that uh, don't start your day when you're hungry okay it's a lot more than that I think Jesus here is enacting a parable Well, as you know, the fig tree is one of the symbols of Israel in the Old Testament. The classic image of an Israelite is one sitting under his fig tree. A bit like, perhaps like Canadians, if you are true Canadian, what would you be associated with? Cody, what would you be associated with? Come on, Lauren. Hockey, ice hockey. Absolutely. Same thing, right? And so just as the fig tree's fruitfulness was a sign of its health, So Israel's fruitfulness was a sign of its faithfulness to God. But the religion of Israel, focused in its leaders, was not producing fruit. And just as the leaves of the fig tree advertised fruit, so the Israel's leaders claimed to be obeying God, but the advertising was a lie because they have perverted the temple practices. They have not repented. When John the Baptist preached repentance, they have not repented even at the appearance of Jesus the Messiah their hearts were barren and unbelieving they had missed the opportunity to repent and to bear true fruit and so Jesus in cursing the fig tree is pronouncing judgment the temple will be destroyed and as we know it within one generation 40 years Rome would come and sack the city destroy the temple scatter the people you see, Jesus was not angry at the tree. Rather, he was using the fig tree as a parable to teach his disciples. God wants fruits in the lives of his people. Otherwise, the tree is just taking up space. But as usual, the disciples missed the point. And instead of asking Jesus why he cursed the fig tree, they were told that they marvelled, saying, How did the fig tree wither at once? You see they were more amazed at the miracle that jesus displayed than the meaning of his act and so jesus used this occasion to teach his disciples a, a lesson on faith and prayer based on their own human capabilities there's little that they can do jesus said but if they put their faith in god and do not doubt and then they can do great things they will not only be able to do what was done to the fig tree but they would be able to move mountains And the faith that Jesus talks about here, implied here, is a faith that submits to God's will, desiring to do his will. The followers of Jesus who prayed with this kind of faith will see their request granted. And one more thing, Jesus was traveling from Bethany to Jerusalem with his disciples when he was saying all these things. And so they'll be facing Mount Zion, the Temple Mount. And so when Jesus said to his disciples that the faith would enable them to cast this mountain into the sea, the use of the word this would refer to Mount Zion, the Temple mound. It is also likely that Jesus intended for this to be a foreshadowing of the destruction of the Temple with its, and its sacrificial system, which would actually take place spiritually speaking in a few days' time with the death of Jesus and physically in 40 years' time when Rome invades Jerusalem. And with that, faith and prayer would now be the way to God, not the temple sacrificial system. And the lesson for us here is this. We can expect God to judge his people, beginning with the leaders. Leaders who put on a show of worship and obedience, but their true character will be revealed through a lack of spiritual fruit. And this was exactly what John the Baptist accused the Pharisees and the Sadducees earlier on in his ministry, when he said, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. These will lead us with no fruits. Well, the religious leaders fully understood what Jesus was saying, even though the disciples may not. Uh, And they were not about to take this lying down, right? And so while Jesus was teaching in the temple, they came up to him and said, verse 23, by what authority are you doing these things and who gave you this authority you know I, I want to be fair because on the surface this is not necessarily an unreasonable question because remember after all um, matthew 11 right john the baptist while he was in prison he sent his disciples and asked jesus about his identity who are you really but you know what look with me down to verse 25 and 27 look ahead there. And there you will read Matthew's account of these leaders thinking aloud about how they should respond to Jesus. And once you see that, you know they don't deserve the benefit of doubt. These are hypocrites, they are cowards, they have absolutely no integrity, and they're not looking for an answer. They are simply hoping to trap Jesus. The true answer, of course, is simple. Jesus was acting on divine authority. But if he says this bluntly, they would accuse him of blasphemy. And Jesus knows their heart. And he has no desire to play their games or fall into their trap. And so he responds with his own question. Verse 24. I also will ask you one question, and if you tell me the answer, then I also will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John. From where did it come? from heaven or from man? Well, to be clear, this is not just a clever ploy on the part of Jesus to deflect the question. You know, like, like I asked my son a few weeks ago, son, how's your preparation for exams coming along? And he says, oh, dad, when are we going to Mexico? <laughs> you know, it's, Jesus is asking this question because by their answer to Jesus' question, they will get the answer to their own question. And what I mean is this. If the religious leaders were to say that the baptism of John came from God, which is the right answer, it implies that John was a true prophet from God. And if John was a true prophet from God, then what John said about Jesus, who Jesus was, would also be true. And what did John the Baptist say about Jesus? You know what he said about Jesus? John the Baptist called Jesus the Lamb of God, the one who takes away the sin of the world, the one who is the Son of God. Well clearly the answer then would be that Jesus' authority is from God, and that would be the right conclusion. But what we have here are leaders who are not interested in the truth. But yet, they were afraid to alienate the people, because if they say John's ministry was not from God, the people may turn against them. There might even be an uprising as a result of that, and this could jeopardize the Roman support of their leadership. And so they're caught in a bind, the leaders. And the best they could do then was to give a cowardly response. We do not know. These leaders had no integrity. And a surprise to pay for that because they could not accept Jesus' authority. They have rejected the king. They have forfeited their opportunity to enter his kingdom. Now, having caught the religious leaders out on their hypocrisy, Jesus then turned the table on them and, and went on the offensive. And he gave three parables. We'll cover only the first parable this week. The first parable tells the story about a man who had two sons. And he went to the first and said, Son, go and work in a vineyard today. And the son answered, I will not. Now, this first son, he's, he's an awful kid, right? He's disobedient, he's rude, he dares to defy his father. Totally uh, countercultural. He represents the prostitutes and the tax collectors. To the Jews, these two groups of people were worse than awful because the prostitutes sell the bodies, but the tax collectors, they sell the nation. Tax collectors are traitors who collaborate with the Roman oppressors. They squeeze every cent possible out from the Jewish people. And then we are told the father goes to the second son and says the same thing. And he answered i go sir now that's a great kid he's polite he's obedient he even calls his father sir second son represents the religious leaders they worship god in a temple they pray on the streets they keep the torah they're great but here's the twist to the parable the first son that awful son the one who says i will not later changes his mind. Which, by the way, in Greek, there's the word right? which literally means repent. He repents and goes to work in a vineyard. But the second son, however, did not go. And so Jesus asked the religious leaders, which of the two did the will of the father? They said, the first. And Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, the tax collectors, And the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterwards change your minds and believe him. There it is again, that Greek word, right? They did not change their mind. The same word, Bethel They did not repent and believe him. You see, it's not what we do or who we are before we meet Jesus that counts. All the wonderful and good things that we may have done. Conversely, all the terrible things that we may have done. They don't count when you come before Jesus. What counts? What gets you into the kingdom of heaven when you come before Jesus is repentance. Repentance. Turning away from your previous life of sin and turning towards Jesus. Counting on him and him alone to save you. Not your good works. As someone puts it, the gates to God's kingdom open wide to the bluntly ungodly if they repent. But not a crack for the precisely orthodox if they do not. The gates to God's kingdom open wide to the bluntly ungodly if they repent, but not a crack, the precisely orthodox if they do not. The religious leaders rejected John the Baptist's authority and now they rejected Jesus' authority. These leaders had no repentance and only those who truly repent will be received into the kingdom. Let me conclude. I started this sermon reminding us that leaders matter. And as I was writing this sermon, I was reminded that the challenges that Jesus faced with the religious leaders of his day are still very much with us today. If you are on the mailing list for Agna or the Anglican Church in North America, that's the province. Uh, that our diocese is in if you're on a mailing list you have received a letter from our archbishop foley beach in february Why has everything happened in february the archbishop was writing in response to the decision of the church of england to allow blessings for same-sex marriages he writes and let me quote from three parts of his letters quote the decision taken yesterday by the generous Synod of the Church of England and the explanations given are clear indications that the Church of England is moving a step at a time to fully accept the practice of homosexuality as part of the life and practice of the English Church. To some of us who have been hoping that the Church would remain with her distinctive identity from those who don't believe the teaching of Scripture, this hope is diminishing and then again he writes the Archbishop of Canterbury has abrogated his fiduciary responsibility and violated his consecration vows to banish and drive away from the church all erroneous and strange doctrine contrary to God's word with his advocating this change in the church of England he is dreading the last remaining fragile fabric of the Anglican Communion. And then again, quote, many faithful Anglicans could no longer serve under bishops who had departed from the teaching of scripture. Let the Archbishop's words sing in for a moment because these are strong, sobering words, but they do reflect the reality of the situation that we have at the moment. Leaders matter. So what we see in our passage in Matthew today are leaders with no fruits, no integrity, and no repentance. Scripture is clear. The kingdom of God will be taken away from them. But what about us? What about those of us who profess a faith in Christ? Jesus' words are surely not meant only for those religious leaders of his day. They're applicable for all of us as well. First of all, are we ourselves living lives bearing fruits? And here I, I can think of two kinds of fruits. They're not all there to be say about fruits, but I think they're a good place to start. The first kind of fruit is the fruit of the spirit. And we see that in Galatians chapter five, verses twenty-two-twenty-three. It's the fruit of the spirit evident in us. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness. Faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Note that Paul uses the singular of fruit here. We don't get to pick and choose which of these nine attributes that we want. They, they come in a package. I can't say because I have a lot of joy that I can afford not to have any self-control. These are the nine attributes of the fruit that we are meant to bear if we are walking by the Spirit ask yourself honestly. Ask each one of us. Let us ask ourselves honestly. Are we having a sense of joy and peace in our hearts, in our spirit? Or is turmoil and anxiety more the order of the day for us? I know especially with midterms last week, um, was it this week, right? Would people who know us think of us as people who are patient, kind, and good? Or would they think of us as being obnoxious, perhaps. Gossipers in the office. Are we struggling with our self-control? Is lust and pornography perhaps an issue for us? Are we loving? Are we gentle? Think about it today, even as we reflect over our passage this afternoon. The second kind of fruit comes from evangelism. They are the fruits that come from sharing The gospel with others seeing them come to christ we are not responsible for making people come to christ that's the job of the holy spirit but we are responsible for being faithful in sharing the gospel so are we sharing the good news of the gospel to people around us do we know how are there people that we are praying for people who are not christians what might be some areas that we may need to work on to bear more fruits Secondly, are we known for our integrity? Does our public facade reflect who we truly are on the inside? It's easy, for instance, to think about politicians who have advertised themselves as people who hold to strong marriages and family values, but are then you altered know, for having affairs. The recent case comes to mind. But I'm sure integrity is an issue close to many of us as well. In our schools, for instance, with virtual exams and so on, I'm reliably told that the average marks for exams taken virtually is often higher, significantly higher, than that taken in person. Why would that be, right? You wonder. Well, and this is now also the tax season. Let us not be people who would fiddle with our taxes, for instance. Thirdly, are we living lives of repentance? Have we firstly repented of our sins and placed our trust in jesus if we have are we making it a habit to daily confess our sins and repent do we have people that we know people who know us well enough that we can confess our sins to my prayer is that all of us here in this hall will be and on zoom will be people who bear fruits people with integrity, and people who repent. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen.